another great theme that Lewis repeats throughout his writing is this quote that he says a number of times that we are taller when we kneel. And I literally think that the reason why Orwell could see the damn palace was not because of a hallucinogen in the water, but because she was kneeling. Oh gosh, okay. I didn't even think about that, but that's good. This is the second part of the first part. I don't even know how to begin. How was this reading after all that we talked about last week? I guess the biggest question that I have is the relevance of some of the events in this part to the overarching storyline. I'd say that's probably at least the most glaring thing to me that like I don't understand about the, the book at this point, or at least the reading that we did this past week. So like with Junia and the fight and everything, and basically everything that she does as queen in part one up until the end where she visits the old priest and, you know, finds out about the legend, like the relevance of all of that, I guess, is a little lost on me. I find in so much as I've I've read and comparing that to the mythological narrative of uh, Cupid and Psyche, I can quite see the fundamental difference. That was one thing that I noticed. I um, haven't read the whole of uh, part one and haven't started from the starting point of it being a retelling of a myth. I find C.S. Lewis's nuance to be very ingenious in that all of the retelling of the narrative, whether it's the historical one or someone else's retelling, has always been a myth. It's just been that, a myth, in the sense that it's characterized by embellishment or some overly personified characteristic of, a, of divinity. Um, you see it in Zeus and all other Greek mythological narratives. However, in C.S. Lewis's telling, the method with which he enacts or rather ambivalence makes the story more relatable. Because it's not just, all right, the story of Psyche being carried away by the West Wing and then she finding out Cupid's true nature or true form and then having to go through all of these troubles and everything. It was, or not seeing the building and therefore questioning the existence of something that someone else finds real. I find that contemporarily more relatable because that happens a lot these days. Many people are sticking signs or certainty that there's the existence of someone else's belief in divinity or they're sticking the signs for their very own selves. It's their own way of defining the journey they're on. I feel like that made the story less of a myth and more of some sort of a quotidian experience that everyone, well, I shouldn't say everyone, but a lot of people would find very relatable because it becomes a story of, is there really a sign? Is there actual divinity? Like psyche claims, it becomes a question of, it becomes less of a myth than 
more of a question of, and that for me seems the fundamental difference not to speak to some of the details of a narrative that well serious Lewis is on making, but I think that's the fundamental difference between his own retelling of the narrative and every other retelling or the well I don't know how far back we can go in history to find the exact point when the myth was originally told. But that's the fundamental difference. It makes it more relatable in that way. I find it very, very nifty what CS did. And I could say now that I see why you guys find him so riveting an author. For me, that was one thing that I found fascinating. I definitely agree with you on that point. That That is the, the central thing, right? The key thing that's... And he's pretty blatant about that, you know. Orwell says, like, this is why I'm writing this thing. This is my account against the gods. And it's interesting. I also, so I was actually... I think I, I mentioned this during our last conversation, how the conversation towards the end of the first chunk that we read between Orwell and Psyche when they're in the tower is very similar to some of the conversations that you see in The Great Divorce. And so I was actually going through The Great Divorce this morning and read, I think I actually ended up reading the majority of the book <laughs> uh, earlier this morning and proceeded to wrap up the reading for this book till we have faces afterwards. So just like a very heavy dosage of Lewis, I guess. But you really see like the conversation on the mountain and even like when the fox is talking with Orwell later, like it is almost indiscernible from those conversations in The Great Divorce, like almost identical. And I can't really put my finger on specifically what it is. I think it's just that one party is, you have these two perspectives that are just talking right past each other. And from the outside, you can see who's right. But each side, inside, obviously, only sees things from the, or at least the one side. In this case, the, in the Great Divorce, the Sinner, or Until We Have Faces, Orwell, um, or maybe even the Fox, they can only see their perspective, whereas the other person can see both, and they have sort of like their this higher view. So I don't know. That, would, that was something that I found very um, sort of telling. But I also wanted to ask that about you guys. I mean, how do you ultimately feel about the case that's ultimately made. Do you think that Orwell is correct or is she not? Um, but then also, whichever way you do feel about it, was Lewis convincing, do you think, with, with his account through Orwell? This is kind of an interesting and difficult question, or it's particularly difficult for me, because if we ask who's right between the perspectives, whether it's the central character in The Great Divorce, versus all of like the ghosts or different figures that he encounters, or whether it's Orwell and Psyche. So you mentioned something interesting, which is just not quite as a spoiler, but as another one of another really recurrent theme in Lewis's work. And I don't know if it makes sense or if it is fair to say that this is an iteration on the battle between good and evil, but there's kind of an analogy between stuff that Lewis says about good and evil and this kind of these kind of discussions, because he says in a number of places that an important theme that Lewis sort of develops is the idea that goodness as such is foundational and evil is derivative, right, or parasitic. And that just is a very strong platonic theme, although I don't think it's just something that he got from Plato, but it is a strong theme in Lewis. And so it follows from this view, at least in Lewis's account, that 
goodness or virtue can understand evil or vice, but vice can't understand virtue and evil can't understand goodness. And so there's like, you're right, there's an a, there's an asymmetrical relationship between these two contraries. It's not like one might be inclined to think, which is that there's an absolute opposition between them. Rather, one of them really is more basic or foundational than the other, with the result that Lewis just says this, and I forget where, that good people can understand bad people, but bad people can't understand good people. And so to even ask which of them is right already forces us to take sides of like, okay, am I on the right side? Am I one of the good people who can understand the bad people? Or am I, am I one of the bad people who just doesn't understand anything? And so that's sort of, I'm sort of difficult. I'm like, hmm, this is, all, this is like bait, and I don't know if I want to take it. As I said earlier in our last conversation, I think there are things that are wrong both about Orwell and Psyche for different reasons. But clearly, we're just, we, we, we see too much in what Orwell does in this section of we've done in this section that we've just finished reading, in order to think that she's completely innocent. But yeah, I think that it it is worth asking sort of what's going on here because we do have two opposed viewpoints that are each more or less in Saki's case more in Orwell's less, but more or less certain of their correctness confronting each other, and that just doesn't go well. So I'm inclined to think that they're both wrong in different ways. Um, with the result that Psyche comes out looking more right. But that's just sort of my perspective, and I'll have more to say about that in a little bit. But it's very difficult to pick sides because it's loaded in such a way that, I don't know if you guys got this impression, but because of the state nature of the book, it's easy to side with Psyche. You know, <laughs> it's kind of like she's clearly kind of like, I don't. it's not so much that she's the good guy versus the bad guy, but she's in a certain sense clearly not crazy. You know, she doesn't come off as crazy or anything. And she's certainly not mean or needlessly resentful. And so it's just looking at her, it's difficult to look at that and say, but you're still wrong. You're still, you know, incorrect about this core foundational belief you have and these things you've experienced. Whereas Orwell, I think for me, I want Orwell to be right so bad, but it's also difficult because she goes about her path so badly that even even if she is right and it's kind of like even if you're right there was a fault in the way she executed her conviction and so she still winds up being wrong even though I want her to be right very desperately but that's kind of what I think so I'm curious about your perspective on Orwell and uh, Psyche then as far as like why each of them is wrong because I mean I, I do think that Orwell does make she makes a great case, I think, at the end of the book. And the the case isn't really that, like, I was right all along, because she does point out flaws along the way. But you'll notice, like, her whole point is not so much a case to justify herself as it is a case against the gods, right? It's a complaint against the gods. And so this book is sort of a storied list of grievances more than it is a storied justification for herself. Which is, I think is an important point, because if you do look at it as just an argument between Orwell and Psyche, then you'd be like, oh, yeah, it's easy to side with Psyche. Orwell was obviously wrong, even though like we don't get to see much from Psyche's perspective. And Orwell obviously points out some things that she did do wrong. But the case against the gods part, that's what's really like philosophically rich at the end of the day. <laughs> you know? If you want, because again, if you want to go against either person, it gets a little legalistic. Although, David, I'm still curious. I still want to hear what you have to say about that. 
especially on Psyche's part. But the case itself, I thought was just brilliantly expressed at the end. I'll go ahead and flip back to it, even though I imagine you have some quotes listed from it. Why must holy places be dark places? But to hint and hover, to draw near us in dreams and oracles or in a waking vision that vanishes as soon as seen, to be dead silent when we question them and glide back and whisper words we cannot understand in our ears when we most wish to be free of them, and to show to one what what they hide from another, what is all this but cat and mouse play, blindman's buff, and mere jugglery? Why must holy places be dark places? I say, therefore, that there is no creature so noxious to man as the gods. So I just thought, yeah, that was very well put. Is it's like, even if they are technically, legally in the right, like, why are we playing the game this way? Why must it be done this way? And it seems almost like a more refined or maybe a like a, a removed version of the problem of evil, right? And it's not, it's not exactly the same. So please don't think I'm saying that, but it's, it's similar, right? It's the problem of divine mystery, I guess, or something like that. Like why, if there is a God, why can't, a, he just come down, and he, she really does say this earlier, like, why can't this God, A, or the gods come down and just make everything as plain as day to us and speak honestly and speak openly? Or, B, just leave us the hell alone. Like, why do you have to play like this whack-ass game in between? Anyways, that's, I guess, my overall reaction that I should have answered with at the beginning <laughs> to your original question. But yeah, David, I'd love to hear your, your side of things. I, I feel like, I don't know why this is the metaphor that I'm going for, but I feel like even though there probably should have been more, slightly more foreplay, I'm just going to jump in. Um, you're right. It's a, form, it's a form of, okay, it seems to be, it reads suspiciously like the problem of evil. I mean, there is some evil in it, in at least insofar as there's real human suffering. Like if we look at the whole ickiness as we, we went with the very high uh, you know, high philosophical terminology here. If we look at the ickiness of unget and gloam, there's lots that's clearly ordinary evil. You know, the king's violent murder, you know, the, the pimping of temple prostitutes, the scapegoating of psyche and all of that. But you're right, it's not directly just about that. It's about the mystery. So this is where I know that I've mentioned it or I talked about it a little bit in our original kind of research on the medievals and Wittgenstein, but I assume, I mean, no offense, that it didn't quite stick. And I also don't know if you were with us then yet, Mason. It's just like the problem of evil is a traditional time-honored philosophical problem. There's another slightly more recent philosophical problem, and it's called the problem of divine hiddenness. J.L. Schellenberg, who was a Canadian philosopher, and back in the 90s, in 93, I think, he wrote a very famous book, at least famous retrospectively, called Divine Hiddenness and Human Reason. He was probably the first person, even though there are some hints of it in previous literature in the history of philosophy, he was, everybody kind of agrees, the first person to put in really ruthless analytic language the problem that we're talking about now. So one way of thinking about this is that the problem is what we call an epistemic form of the problem of evil. The word evil is unfortunately very strong in English, and it's very rare, unless you're talking about someone like Hitler or Mussolini, to ever like say, oh, that person's evil. It's just very, it's a very big deal to call someone evil, to be like that, that's evil, right? Um, there are some things, yeah, sure, we all agree on it, but in terms of like in the moment, whether just because we're incredibly 
flaccid judgers. We just don't want to have to pass that judgment on somebody. But if you think about like a lot of other languages besides English, evil is just the same word as bad. And bad just basically means not good. So it doesn't have to be quite the same moralistic judgment as we tend to pass in English because we have a word for bad and, and for evil. So by way of example, I think we can agree, we probably would agree that things like natural disasters aren't good, right? And that doesn't mean that we blame the hurricane or the tornado or the earthquake. There's no moral agency there. It just happened and it sucks that it happens, even though it causes a lot of pain. And we all know that that's not good, but it's not exactly evil. I mean, it depends on who you ask, right? And I'm sure there's some people who might think, depend, like if you are in a system where you think, okay, the gods are messing with us and they're punishing us, then maybe there's questions about whether it's evil. But for the most part, it's like, I stubbed my toe. It's annoying and it ruined my morning, but nothing, nothing evil was done to me. I'm just clumsy, right? And so if you think about an evil as simply a not good, when we think about the problem of evil in its ordinary terms, usually the questions about the goods and the bads are questions about moral goods and moral bads, or what we call, what might be called natural goods or natural evils, right? So earthquakes and tornadoes and the lion eating the gazelle gloriously on Nat Geo, those are all natural evils. And I mean, at the same, yeah, well, I'm, I won't get into that tangent about the lion, you know, because it's obviously a good for the lion, right? But the point is, is that there's this distinction between naturally good things and naturally bad things and morally good things and morally bad things. It's a distinction which, again, um, since he's kind of becoming one of our homeboys, it's a distinction which really only Kant made very explicit when he wrote about the problem of evil. But there's another kind of good and evil we could talk about, and those are epistemic goods and epistemic evils. Um, so everybody generally kind of agrees, and it's retrospectively kind of suspicious that we do all sort of agree, but we'll leave that for later. Knowledge seems like it's a good thing. If we are knowing creatures or creatures who are capable of knowing, then it seems like knowledge is a good thing to have. In general, we would say that if somebody is smart or really intelligent or they know a lot of things, they're at least so far better than somebody who doesn't know those things or who doesn't even have the interest or the curiosity, right? So if knowledge is a good, then by contrast, ignorance is a kind of evil. And actually, a lot of people, including many of the Greeks, actually probably all of the Greeks, and not too few early modern philosophers, thought that ignorance is the ultimate explanation for evil. In the end of the day, people who lack the proper cognitive faculties or the, the proper cognitive comportment mistake bad or neutral things for good, and it becomes evil if they then pursue it. Kant was probably one of the only early modern philosophers who didn't buy that, and so argued very differently about what the nature of evil is. And it makes, it, it, it's worth saying, we talked about a lot about fallenness last time, that for Kant, the only explanation, in order, so in order that evil not be reducible to ignorance, and us kind of mistakenly pursuing something that we shouldn't. The only way to explain the fact that we willfully pursue things that sometimes we know are bad is incidentally that we are fallen. And so that is another way to connect the things, right? But basically it's reasonable to think about ignorance as a kind of evil. 
Maybe it's a natural evil because there's things we just happen to not know. Maybe it's a moral evil because sometimes we're willfully ignorant, but it is a kind of not good. It's not good to be ignorant. So then you add God and stir, and the problem becomes if there's a God, this is a small iteration of the argument of divine hiddenness that Schellenberg makes, is that if there's a God, and he understands the nature of God as being a perfect being, like an unsurpassably great being. If there's a God, then knowing this God is the best kind of knowledge possible. And so, I mean, having that knowledge would be, in conjunction with having a relationship with this God, the greatest human good possible, right? If there's a God, then of course, we ought to want to know this God. And, you know, this God is like everything for us. I mean, that seems fine, like it's a reasonable thing to think, but then we find up with this problem, which is that so many people don't know this God and don't have a relationship with this God. And for many of them, most of them arguably, but at least for a not insignificant portion of them, it's not even their fault that they don't know this God, or that they don't have this relationship with this God, right? And so we were in this horrible situation in which have millions or billions or however many people, the majority of the human race, you know, the mass of the damned, as Augustine would call them, who don't know this God. And they should, or they, you know, rather, not so, not so much as they should, it would be really, really dope if they did, but they don't. And that really, really sucks. And it makes it so much worse. And so the argument from divine hiddenness, like the problem of evil, is an argument against theistic against theism, right? It's an argument on behalf of atheism saying, basically, it's true that it would be really, it would be really, it would be really good for us as humans if we knew this perfect God who exists. But because we're limited, again, there's only so much we can be expected. Ideally, if this God actually loved us and like meant us well, he could just cut through the bullshit and say like, here I am, like come know me. And, and that's the problem, insofar as that one doesn't happen. Um, there are some other missing steps, but in, like the main crux of the problem is, it's understandable that many people don't know God or don't know about God or don't have some kind of relationship to God. But that ultimately, because of their human limitations, isn't their fault. For some of them, it might be. But if there's anybody who is not culpable for their unbelief, then the responsibility falls on God. And, you, and the, the reasoning goes, if God wanted to have a relationship with them and make himself numb to them, then he's omniscient, so he would know how to do it. And he's omnipotent, so he could do it. He, you know, he could do it, but it's not happening, right? There are people like really good, pious, you know, good people like John Stuart Mill or, you know, Socrates, like a whole bunch of people, depending on who you want to enlist as your ammunition. There's so many people who seem like they're good, who want to know the truth, who spend their life looking for it. And then when it comes to the God question, they come up empty. And it's like the ultimate belly flop that you have to watch and just sort of cringe while you watch it. And you're like, that. I mean, it's, it's people like me, right? <laughs> it's like, it's the ultimate cringe where you're like, oh my gosh, like that, what's going on there? So the problem of divine hiddenness is an, sometimes said to be an epistemic version or the epistemic iteration of the problem of evil. 
because there's one thing, there's all the bad things that befall us and that's bad enough. But it's to some degree, if you think that there's something important or special about human reason, as we've talked about repeatedly over our conversations, it's like adding insult to injury. They not only do evil be evils befall us, but we don't even know what their purpose is. Like we don't even have the security and the safety of saying, well, at least we know that God's taking care of everything because we honestly don't. Like, and so it just makes it worse. It compounds the problem of evil that we don't know the explanation to the problem of evil. And for rational beings like us who have the craving to know and who, for, knowledge, for whom knowledge constitutes a good, it's an added bad that we have ignorance of God and that we have ignorance of why this all is happening to us. And they were just sort of stuck. It's like we're stuck in a avoidant, attached, abusive relationship in which God is like the one, <laughs> God is just like the abusive partner who's gaslighting us. And it makes it really bad. So that's kind of the nature of the argument, which is like, I really liked what you were saying. It was like, yes, Mason gets it. Like this, this is a problem we can talk about. That's one thing. So the other thing to answer your other question is that one of the conclusions of the problem of divine hiddenness or the argument from divine hiddenness that Schellenberg makes in his original book. And of course, he's since written a bunch about it because it's his thing, right? But at least in the original book at the very end, because philosophers always have to tie up loose ends and say, you know, what's the take home? What's the, what's the point of this argument? Schellenberg thinks that it's an argument that basically decisively demonstrates the case for atheism. But he grants and says, you may be one of those few people who, you know, for whatever reason, you, you, know, you feel blessed, you're epistemically privileged, you may think you have a really good reason to believe in God, right? And that's something that's important to keep in mind, right, is that there's no such thing in a certain sense as abstract reasons or anything. Just because a justification might exist for the existence of God as in terms of argument, doesn't mean that you have that justification because maybe you haven't thought through it or it's never occurred to you. You can't really piggyback off of someone else's epistemic achievement. But similarly, you might conceivably be in a privileged situation where you think or you take yourself to have a really good reason for believing in God. And so even though other people don't have access to it, you have that. And in your case, it would be rational to hold on to your belief. Like the important thing is that you as an individual only believe on the sufficient grounds that you have, not on the grounds that other people have. So you might be, you might conceivably again, be in a situation where you have a good reason to believe in God. As an example, you know, a really pedestrian example, you may have had some really overwhelming spiritual experience that, in which you think, oh my God, like literally, I experienced God, or you know, I, I talked to God, or I heard God's voice, or something like that, right? And although there's lots of ways to question that experience from the outside, for you as an epistemic subject, if it happened to you and you can't find anything wrong with it, any way to sort of explain it away, and you're convinced that it was a genuine experience, then it's rational for you to keep believing, you know, or at least to sort of take your, it, it's rational to take that experience into account in your calculation of reasons for whether or not you should believe in God's existence. So that is possible, and he grants that. Obviously, he's ultimately going to be skeptical about it and think that there's probably is another explanation, but at least he grants that it's possible. But this, nevertheless, even if you are one of those privileged few who takes yourself to have a really good reason for belief in God, despite the problem of divine hiddenness, the other conclusion is that the fact that other people 
don't. Or the fact that there are people who are in every other way epistemically reliable, who are sincere in their desire for seeking the truth, and who come to the conclusion that there is no God, that's still worth pondering. And at the very least, at the very least, that fact that there are other people who don't know God and can't seem to make contact with God, that should at the very least weaken your belief. Like you might still have belief and be rationally justified in having belief in God, but at the very least, it should make you think twice. It should make you sort of be worried. I mean, and I really like those sort of arguments because like, again, misery loves company. This, the conclusion of the argument, if you are religious is, you should at least be worried. Like maybe it's not going to be enough to overwhelm your belief and make you an atheist, but you should at least be very worried because it says something very disturbing about our epistemic situation. If for some reason, you, whoever you are, are the special one who God has favored with knowledge of his existence and other great minds have just completely, be passed, completely been passed by. And that should make, I mean, it might be cool. Like you might be thinking like, yeah, like I'm one of God's chosen ones, but it might also just make you think, holy crap, like if XYZ person hasn't had it, then am I just deluding myself? So at the very least you should worry. At the very least, the problem of divine hiddenness is grounds for reducing your confidence in the belief you have in God's existence. So with that said, like many religious believers, the thing about Psyche is that she is so sure of her God. And that makes sense, right? I mean, for God's sake, she's literally sleeping with him at some point if you, below, if you follow the story. But it should occur to her, like her trust in the God is so complete or I don't even know if it is complete actually, because there's so much she doesn't know about him, right? So in a certain sense, her, even though her faith and her confidence is genuine and sincere, it also really is naive. Because again, it's not like she asked for any of this to happen to her. In a certain sense, she is equally a victim like Orwell. It just so happens that her victimhood is really awesome <laughs> because she gets to be the bride of a god. Um, but in a certain sense, she still doesn't have, she is still not entitled to the full understanding of her experience. That might be a weird way to say it. Even if she has the experience, it doesn't follow from the experience that she understands it in all of its meaning, which is, she admits that, right? She's like, there's so much that I don't know. And so I don't know if this, sound, if this sounds like overly resentful to say, and if it even makes sense saying it out loud, but I think that she could have been possibly more sensitive to the realization that Orwell really couldn't experience the the, the, cap, the the house and the god and everything and i don't know exactly know how he could have could have done that but this is where i think that the fact that they both messed up in their own way made the case worse because if orwall had not been possessive of psyche like if she had, hadn't been jealous of her lover and if she had not been so focused on proving that psyche's lover was not what he seemed, if she had been kind of like, just sort of like an innocent bystander, like Bardia or the Fox or something, had she not gone out of her way to try to force Psyche to do the thing, trying to expose the God, I think that there would have been, it would have been far more interesting to see, well, why is it that the God, first of all, chose Psyche rather than Orwell or anybody else? And then also, why is it, like, what, like, like Mason said, why does it have to be this way? Like, why can't, he just show himself and all of that. And those are interesting. There are some answers to those questions, but I think still think it's a very disturbing problem where 
the way that I read Psyche now that I'm jaded is that she has all of the attributes of like, yeah, a naive young wife who's obsessed with her husband, which is fine. I mean, it makes sense. I'm, I'm not faulting her for that, but it does form a barrier because she's not thinking about it. She's literally not able to think about it from Orwell's perspective because she has a direct experience of what she believes. And so even though it's true that Orwell doesn't really understand Saki's perspective, I think that and this is why I wasn't sure if this was a good analogy and whether it is appropriate to attribute it to Lewis here. I don't think that Psyche actually understands Orwell. And so it's not a case of someone who just happens to be good and virtuous, completely understanding somebody who's not. I think she's literally oblivious. And it just works out in her favor that the God has chosen her and blessed her and that she gets to be the bride. But I'm not sure she actually understands the experience of doubt in the same way that Orwell does. Now, granted, Orwell doesn't understand the experience of faith the way that Psyche does, but there's a problem on both of their ends, which is that they both are literally the victim, the epistemic victim of their circumstances. Orwell, because of her experiences and because of everything that's been sort of, that her life has led up to, cannot bring herself to trust Psyche's God. But Psyche, who has not had the same life experience as Orwell, and has been in many ways been very different from Orwell's life experience, also can't bring herself to doubt her God, which is, you know, that's, that's part of the problem, which is that I think that that's for me what I love about this book so much, and especially the parts that we've read for today, is that it shows the sense in which even when it comes to our epistemology, we are still victims <laughs> because Orwell can't help. I mean, to maybe to some extent she could, but as far as the actual experiencing of the of the house and the god goes she can't help her jaded doubt and psyche can't help her trust and her love and neither of them can help each other and so they are both just screwed and stuck with their own experience of what the world is like and it happens to be different and that is so terrifying because it means literally you have people walking around who, to the best of their knowledge and ability, believe the truth, believe whatever they believe, and have good what they take to be good reasons for it, and the beliefs don't match up. And this is the kind of bullshit that gives rise to radical skepticism, where you're just like, is there an objective reality? Is there a world outside of our head? Like, because if we can't agree on very basic facts, like whether there is a big ass house in this valley, then how on earth are we supposed to agree about anything else, like the public good, or like politics, or like science, or things like that? For all we know, we're experiencing completely different things. So I know this is a really, really basic thing to be concerned by, and I've never personally been concerned by it, but I've had students who are concerned by it. The worry about how do we know that we're all seeing the same colors, right? How do I know that what I call red and what you call red are the same or match up in a reasonable way? How do, I, how do we know that whenever I think I'm seeing the world and all of its true technicolor, just like the Wizard of Oz, you're not seeing something in black and white? The, and because it has to do with an incorrigible experience, like I just literally see colors the way I see colors. I have no conscious access to how I do that. It's just a matter of how my eyes are wired. And so if we were different, how could we ever explain to each other that it was different in a way that made it sound like we weren't crazy? Because all I'd be, all, the only thing that would have to, like, it would, it would wind up being something so stupid. It would be you and me pointing at an apple, like crazed looks in our faces saying like, this is red. And you're like, yes, this is red. 
And I'm like, but no, is it red, red? Is it my red? And you're like, I don't know, but it's my red. And that gets us nowhere. And so um, in a world like that, where we can't even trust our most basic faculties of like seeing what the colors are, it's really scary. And so like the first several times I read this book and still to this, like now, of course, it's very, I read it very philosophically. And so I'm prepared. But when I first read it, like literally my blood pressure went up the anxiety. I'm like, oh God, they can't see, like she can't see the house and she can't see the house. Like it's disturbing. It's like a, it's like a psychological thriller. And so, yeah, I find it really disturbing. And this, the whole idea, right? Just if some of us can experience things that others can't, there's like almost no limit to what the implications of that ridiculous state of affairs would be. And I think that Orwell, like I can definitely sympathize with Orwell's, you know, she says somewhere, she's like, I, it's like I rushed to close the door against something, you know, because if you would do, if you would let it in, then what, what does that even mean? Like, what won't you be letting in if you're like, maybe there are things that she's experiencing that I can't. So that's how, why I think they're both kind of wrong, not in the same way, but I don't think it's as simple as saying Psyche knows what she's about. Like she's a fully mature individual and Orwell's just a petty, selfish person, both within the confines of what they have available to them are believing as they think appropriate. And the fact that it doesn't match is what's terrifying. Okay. So I have two things to say to that. One, because I definitely see what you're saying, but there's I guess what you're saying is it's almost like they're on equal footing, right? As far as like their epistemic victimhood and one just manages to get off much better than the other one does. Um, but I think maybe the, at least for me, the confounding or the thing that kind of confounds that is the sense that kind of like we were talking about before, how good and evil aren't really a duality in the sense that they're equal, right? Like one is there, one is a thing that's like a foundation for other things that it's it's present. And all evil ever is, is just sort of some kind of twisting or corruption, or some people would say an absence, some people might not even say that of goodness. But certainly, yeah, just the twisting of something that's already good. So they're not really opposites. And you might be able to even say the same thing about what we see as like this epistemic good right? Or the situation where you have certainty and doubt or skepticism, but they're not exactly opposites as we normally like to think of them. One is the presence of something. Oh yeah, but then so skepticism or doubt would be more an absence, not a, not a twisting, meh, a twisting of certainty. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe, maybe that thought doesn't stick quite as much as I thought it did. <laughs> but, I think... If, we, if I wanted to try to lend a hand in resuscitating it, I think that you're right. The duality wouldn't quite work between straight up certainty and between complete skepticism. The question would be, it wouldn't be a question of sheer absence. It would be a question of corruption. And as we apply it to knowledge, you know, corruption or perversion, and as we apply it mm -hmm. to the issue of knowledge, the question is, what if I am perceiving something but it's different than what's really there. Such yeah, that, yeah. such like, it's, so it would be, uh, it would be, I guess it would be as if Orwell saw something, like I guess what would be truly appalling would be if the, if the vision she has of the castle wasn't really the castle, like that would be the, like, the, the, the equivalent of what we're talking about, where like you are perceiving something 
and it, but it's not even, even then, it's not the actual thing that you're supposed to be perceiving. Well, but you do still have that with the grapes and the wine. Yeah, yeah that, that, that's a good so, example. That's a good example. Then. Yeah, where yeah. she literally drinks it and she's like, oh, it's nice, cool mountain water. She's <laughs> <laughs> like, no, it's wine. <laughs> yeah, so that is a, that's a good example that I think supports what you're saying, which is that, well, I'm not sure what you were saying, but the point that you raise about there being a, a the idea is that if we try to apply the rationale of the way that Lewis talks about moral good and evil, or natural good and evil, we apply it to knowledge, then we would have to say that Orwell's ignorance of the gods or other people's ignorance of God is in some way a corruption of what ought to be a very foundational certainty or belief. And if it's not going to result in just a sheer, if the, if the inverse of that, if the corruption of knowledge of the divine, is it going to be a straight up denial, then it has to be a misunderstanding or a misperception. And that misperception comes out, of course, in Orwell, literally experiencing one thing, like not just seeing Psyche look crazy, like seeing her drink out of fake goblets or something, but literally experiencing one thing, drinking out of Psyche's hand, and then Psyche thinking, this, I'm, you know, I'm giving you this beautiful chalice that you can keep. It's just like that, that's the level of, and I think actually there is a good analogy to some extent, right? Which is just to say that if the real gods are like the god who Psyche is married to, then why have this icky fertility religion of Ungit? Like, I, I, maybe that would be, I don't know, like, so obviously I've been out of the church game for a while, so I, don't, I literally don't know what gets taught these days, but there's an old belief among certain kinds of Christians, like certain of the church fathers, which it depends on, how, like, the attitude that you take towards other religions will say a lot about how you feel about their approach to the truth, right? So you might think, suppose you are part of a religion that purports to be a true religion, and also it purports to be an exclusively true religion. In other words, suppose that you're like part of some version of Christianity, and then you have to look at other religions and say, how do we explain this? Like, how do we cope with the fact that billions of people don't share this religion? And so you can, like, depending on how you explain that, the way that some of the church fathers explained it was to say, literally, this is what happened. Satan counterfeited the true religion and spread a bunch of fake religions so that literally the reason why all these religions sometimes seem like our religion is because literally the devil is messing with us um, or with them. And so the only way we can explain that is to say that you have literally been pranked by the devil and you have a, you have a, fake, you know, you have a fake counterfeit religion and no, God help you. Um, you could take a different approach, obviously, which one of those approaches to say like, well, your religion's not entirely fake. It has some good bits in it. And then there's a bunch of other not good bits that we've got to get rid of. Um, you should still certainly become a Christian, but you don't have to necessarily trash your old religion necessarily. And again, then the question becomes how to plug it back to the problem of divine hiddenness how does God tolerate this? Like how, like, how do you make sense of the fact that I've met, like I've met Hare Krishna missionaries who were so devoted to Krishna, you could bring tears in their eyes by talking about Krishna. And that's, that's gotta be sincere. Like you can't, I mean, you could fake that, I guess, but most people probably couldn't fake that. And so these people really do believe one thing. 
how, and so, I mean, it's, it might be weird enough to an outsider, like another human who's just judgy, like me, but my opinions literally mean nothing. The real question is, how does God tolerate this? There's, I mean, there's not that many religions in the world, but there's plenty of religions in the world. It's sort of like, how do you, how can you bear to watch this all happen? You have like a bunch of people who all believe in their own way with their own justification that they are seeking the truth or the true God or the true gods or whatever. Yet after however many millennia that, we're, that we've been around, we have not yet come to basic agreement about the divine nature. <laughs> we have like two billion Christians and of those two billion, one half doesn't think the other half is properly Christian. And then you have like, you know, a billion and a half Muslims and a billion Hindus. And you've got to wonder, you're like, this is a very large amount of people. This isn't even like Coke versus Pepsi. This is a really large scale global disagreement. How do you do with that? Well, and so, so now comes the other part of, I think what you've kind of overlooked about the relationship between Orwell and Psyche and Orwell's case against the gods, which is that just for an instant, she did see the palace, but that's the key point, you know, like that is the key moment. And it just so happens to be the one thing she never told anyone else. But I think that Lewis's contention here is that for every single one of us, and I, I think this rings true uh, if you read some of his other stuff as well, that for every single one of us, there is at least one, and perhaps only one, but at least one moment where we, it's sort of like the opposite of doubt, I guess, where instead of like doubting God, like you're tempted to believe, right? You doubt everything that you thought you doubted, I guess, if that, or you doubt your doubts, if that makes sense, for just a second, or we'll seize the palace. And, you know, I, I recall sort of like, well, yeah, so a period in my own life where I really was not sure about my faith and was very distanced from everything and was experiencing a lot of doubts. And I remember having just one moment or I was doubting the doubts. And I, there was like just this temptation to think like, eh, maybe there is a God, you know, or maybe like I've been doing this wrong. Maybe, maybe there's something going on that I haven't seen or that I can't see. So I think, sorry, I'm getting a little long-winded here, but I think Lewis's contention, at least in this point of the book, uh, and you can, a lot of people would deny this, but his contention is that just for at least a split second, somewhere in your life, there's, this moment that changes everything because if Orwell hadn't seen the palace ever at all then she really would have a case she absolutely would have a case against the gods but just that one split second that one thing whatever it was dismantles her whole case and completely changes the entire book it really does right and we see that at the end in part two um and so I think that's meant to apply to us as well, where like that one moment, whatever, whatever the hell it is that you do with it, that one moment where you're tempted to believe that there's a God of some kind, or maybe you've been wrong about everything, that's the defining element. And that's what's really going to matter after we all die, you know, when we're the, our own judgment. I think Mason's point about the moment when Oral sees the, palace that's the second is a good enough segue for me because i meant to make a proposition based on that point in particular um however it's good to concede that the book is a very lurid showing of their epistemological predicament how one knows whether what one knows is the same as what another knows or if anything a person knows is actually objectively true 
I think it's very lurid in the sense that you can quite feel it. It's very palpable as you read it. It's not one of those philosophical or lofty, highfalutin explication of epistemology. No, it's a person not seeing a chalice with wine. Rather, she sees a person's hand and the other thing. It's so, it's very extensive in that sense. It's, you can, it's very palpable. It's not like I said, it's not just philosophical explication. So in that sense, I think Lewis did a fine job of showing us how lurid the epistemological predicament can be. I also wanted to say that when it comes to proposing a good or a right between oral on the god, I think to an extent, I find what she did quite admirable in the retelling of the story so that whoever reads it has the chance to make their opinion about it rather than just completely telling. While she says from the start, which is last preface, which is what I was saying I wanted to, the last time we talked, I said I wanted to see how and why she finds um, a problem with the um, god of the Grey Mountain. I was very curious why that um, occurred. While she starts by saying this is a story to show that, I think she does a fine job of being as objective, I should say, in the retelling, in that she just made it all about retelling the story um, and not overly infusing it with her own opinions. Because many times she would say, um, if you Greek who is reading this um, think so about this thing, you should ask your mom or something like that. She wants you to go do your own research in a manner of speaking. And for that, I, I think what she did was very commendable because she didn't just write a thesis on her own opinion. Rather, she just retold of her experience, so to speak. And in my opinion, I think it's very commendable. And going off of that to talk about the whole prospect of hiddenness, as I spoke of earlier, I, I think it's, it's very easy for us to say that it's, I mean, it's obviously unfair that they would hide themselves, the gods, from a fraction of people and let others see them. So like you said, it's, you could propose oral circumstance and psyches as some sort of epistemic victimhood. One is privileged to have seen and the other not have seen. It's, it's one way to read it, I, I can see it, and it's a fine way, I would say. However, I wanted to make a proposition of deliberate inquiry, which is which I think I could draw a parallel to the first book we read, which is uh, Faust, which we read earlier. At some point in our exposition of that book, we were we we said that in all of Faust's searching and his jadedness with life, having read everything and not finding any comfort or solace in either of the things that he has picked up, we were able to say that one thing that characterized him the most is an inquiry. Uh, he was characterized by a need to know. He wanted to he sought out things. I say that there's a part. Just before Oral sees the palace for a split second, I'm going to read what my version says. Um, it reads, was it madness or not, which was true, which scandal was. And then she says this, I was at that very moment. Oh, actually, this was even before she saw the, the palace um, when she went to drink the water. This was while she was still in the palace with Psyche. And everything that Psyche had said seemed like madness to her. It was inexplicably incredible. It was just impossible for Psyche to be seeing the very things that she claimed to see. And she couldn't even see any trace of it. She couldn't see a cop. She couldn't see the pilot. She couldn't see a foot. She couldn't see anything. And it's 
understandable for her to have thought it was madness. But she said something. She said, I was at that very moment when, if they meant us well, the gods would speak. Mark what they did instead. And then she said, it began to rain. It was only a light rain, but it changed everything for me. Now, for me, in that moment, it was, she saw something that made it slightly believable that Psyche's not completely mad. She saw something that made Psyche's perspective seem okay that Psyche thinks it. So it wasn't just, overall, they just think, all right, she's mad. She doesn't know what she's doing. We have to sedate her and strap her to a gurney anymore. She thought there's a possibility that she does see what she says she sees. She didn't go as far as to say, okay, therefore I believe her. No, she said, there is a possibility that Psyche does see what she says she sees. But what I want to emphasize is the precursor to Oral's change in her mind, which is that she said, at that very moment, when Ife meant as well, the gods speak. So it means that, whether it's for Oral or for C.S. Lewis, there is a moment when one can perceive things other than one's, should I say, innate or congenital predispositions. Um, I, I remember, I think it was Bertrand Russell when he said of Kant that, um, of all the philosophers he had known that um, Kant was quite noble in that he proposed everything. But he said Kant's, one of Kant's flaws is that he held on to principles he imbibed at his mother's knee, um, I think. And in, in that way, you could say that oral and psyche were variously disposed different perspectives based on the way they were brought up and all that. That, it's the, whole, it's the whole dichotomy of nature versus nature, um, whole type thing. However, I want to say that there's also that deliberate effort of inquiry, whether it's the holy curiosity, which is what I want to draw a parallel to in Faust. I think that moment that Oral was referring to as that very moment, if they meant as well, the God to speak, is that moment where she sought to see. It was, she, was, she was curious in a matter of speaking. She wanted to know, I think. And that's why I said Mason's statement helps with a segue for me to make that particular proposition in that. While there is a truth, now I'm going to stay away from making my own proposition as far as my reservations concerning why there's such a thing as divine hiddenness and all that. Uh, but I want to stay on the path specifically grounded in the book, which is, uh, but I'll say this, that while there are cases and different schools of thought as to the reason why there's such a thing as divine hiddenness, I'll say I have mine. I would say, however, that everyone is imbued with that capacity to seek, that effort to make an inquiry as to know. And I think it's in that inquiry, or it's in the nature, or should I say extent. Now, I will also say that this is very unfair, because I know that many people can claim that they've made inquiries for years and haven't found anything or any signs. I remember Oral also saying that where are the signs? Um, she just wanted the signs. She even said that back in her room, uh, there was a scene where she laid on the ground and prayed to the God. I would say prayed, matter, but she spoke to the God as she could, and she heard nothing. But I want to say that there might be some sort of an intrinsic difference between that moment where she claims to have prayed, in the sense that what we can define as supplication 
may not necessarily be that. I want to claim that there might be a difference between that, an intrinsic difference between that, and that moment she claims to have been ready to have been spoken to by the God. I, I want to claim that there might be such an intrinsic difference. And it's in that nature of our inquiry, I think, to an extent, that differentiates us in that way, that makes us different from psyche. Psyche is, should I say, faith wing inquiry was more of the soul that could see her husband, so to speak, or the God. And Oros might have been enshrouded more by her disbelief and her skepticism, which in itself isn't necessarily a bad thing, which we could claim that it's sourced from the way she was raised. However, I think my whole point is to that particular part of the book in relation to why Psyche sees and Oral doesn't, that part of the book where she claims that it's that moment to which one can be spoken to. I think it's a fine juxtaposition of skepticism, inquiry, and faith. There's a, there's a fine mixture, uh, a connoisseur's cocktail, so to speak, of these three things that makes one more receptible to seeing. I think that's what differentiates us to extend the lesson from the book to what's actually happening now, pervasively. I think it's that different in our cocktails. You know, one has a cocktail that's uh, finely made and another not, not just yet, doesn't quite reach the mark. I think it's in that difference that we could see why the divine hiddenness is pervasive and why also some people can say that they perceive of divinity in some way and others don't. I just want to say that from the book, I claim that some people haven't quite reached that moment that Oro proposes or some others have. And I also want to say, as Mason said, that Oro may have actually reached it at some point, which is what made us see the palace for a split second. For a second, I thought it was um, something in the... While I was still reading it, when I got to that point, I thought it was something in the water that she drank. Because it was around that time that she saw the past. I was like, oh my God, there's uh, is it ayahuasca or there's uh, a hallucinogen in the water. That's what Psyche has been drinking this whole time. First, for a second, I thought that. <laughs> I thought there might be a hallucinogen. Um, however, I, I want to say it's, it's more than that. More than a, it's some sort of a mixture of one's fundamental belief and one's readiness to be open that Oral speaks of that differentiates people in general. It's very well proposed by Lewis. I think it was finally done, really. So <clears throat> that's that's really good. If it, and if you have more, like please stop me. Um, at least I begin speaking again. But I, I that you're. I think that is a really great part, like the split second. And I think that Mason's right that the fact that that second happened, you know, is an important, indispensable part in the case against Orwell. So the the argument from divine hiddenness, at least in the iteration that I'm most familiar with, claims that the problem, like the piece of decisive evidence that proves that God, if God exists, um, is not equally disposed to reveal God's self to everybody. And so that this is, you know, a problem the, the evidence is that there are people who non-culpably disbelieve. It's a very cumbersome way to say it, and Schellenberg has 
expressed regret that he expressed it that way originally. But the original expression was that there are people who are non-culpably or inculpably disbelievers, which is to say that for no fault of their own, they don't have experience of God. They don't have the grounds for believing in God. Obviously, there are ways in which somebody can culpably disbelieve, if, if it makes sense to say that. The most obvious way that somebody can culpably believe or disbelieve is if they have an ulterior motive or interest in the belief in question. So sometimes this is, this is unfortunate, but if you read the New Testament and you read the works of Paul, and I think it's, I think, right? Nobody quote me. I'll have to cut this in. I think it's in Romans, but it's, it's a pervasive idea amongst early Christians that everybody knows that God's real. And so the people who fail to properly to appropriately worship God are just wicked, right? Like they have, they have hardened their hearts. They've turned against God. They have, um, and the litany of accusations goes on, like in one of the particularly more lurid chapters of Romans, the accusations are they've traded the worship of the creator for the creation. They've sort of wantonly given over to themselves over to immorality. This is supposedly the explanation of a great many things, including um, no, like non-heterosexuality and a bunch of other things, right? Like, so in, in one fell swoop, the accusation of wanton ignorance. We explain everything. We're just like, you filthy sinners. <laughs> like you well, didn't... I'm going to interrupt you real quick if that's okay. Yeah, do Actually, it. Do so it. that's, um, I think at the end of, end of either Romans 2 or Romans 3, I read that just a week or two ago. And I was curious about that because it doesn't seem characteristic of Paul. Something seemed kind of off about that. Um, and I am curious as to whether that was Paul really ranting about just like every non-believer or if what he was saying was specific to a certain group that was working to undermine the Romans at the time. Because at first glance, it really does come across as if he's accusing like every single non-believer as being all of these things. And you're like, oh my gosh, <laughs> like, that's that uh, doesn't seem quite accurate. You know, I'm sure that like, sure, there was, you know, plenty of all of this going on on but to say that yeah every single non-believer ever is like you know just this long list of like all of the sins is not quite right and it also doesn't jive with his later assertion that we were not against flesh and blood but against principalities and whatever else right and so i i can't for sure say like you're wrong and this is why but i am inclined to think that because of a lot of what he says elsewhere and because he states this in a certain way in just one specific text, that he may be only talking about a certain group of people here and not all sinners everywhere. So I, I don't know, that may not have a ton of bearing on what you're saying, but I don't think that Paul went quite that far. It's a good point, and I'm glad that you stopped me because it's very, e it's very easy to jump on the anti-Paul bandwagon because like... <laughs> I, he's just like, so, I mean, the truth is, I think, about a lot of ancient people that we just probably would not have jived terribly well with the personalities. A great deal, not just of the New Testament, but of a lot of writing, is just write, written in this rhetorical style that invites all kinds of liberal criticism. Like, there's just, no, there's just no way to make it right where it's like, 
instead of saying like, let's, instead of opening by a book by talking about like, let's talk about our values and our feelings and stuff like that. We just jump straight for like, and they did this and they did that. So I th you're right, I'm probably, it's, it would be easy, very tempting, very satisfying, but also just too easy to be a completely like um, against Paul. But the point I was making, which I would like to hope still stands, which I, I, do, I take your point in, in duly, is that it seems that there is a widespread attitude among certain kinds of religious people. And particularly, the more ancient you get, the more strongly attitudes appears, which is that what we believe is perfectly obvious and makes perfect sense. And whoever denies it or whoever doesn't jive with it is just willfully ignorant. Like you, I do think that this much I think I can say pretty legitly is that I think that there is not a really good there's a lot of reasons for this, but nevertheless, there's just not a very good concept of true atheism in ancient Christianity. It took some time for people to begin to think we need really interesting arguments for the existence of God. Because if you like, if you look at, again, a lot of Paul's writings, it certainly appears that the idea, the idea is God's sovereignty and God's existence is just obvious. Like it's not a question about his existence, it's a question about his dealings with human beings. And the thing about the pagans is that they just, they believe in the wrong gods, you know, and they also on top of it have these sort of immoral lifestyles, which turns out to be more of an ad hominem, if anything. But nevertheless, the, the idea is so I also don't know if you guys know this, but I'm always preaching it from the rooftops. A lot of our labels for religions are in a certain sense very useless because humans, it seems, this is a, one of those grand philosophical sounding claims, which is really just a piece of pithy everyday wisdom. But it seems that as humans, a lot of times we're not very good at knowing ourselves until we have to come into contact with and we run up against an opposing force they sort of gives us an existential crisis and challenges our identity. And then all of a sudden, you know, we, we know what we stand for and we have like these strong values that we espouse. Whereas before we might've just been going about our day, living life, trying to like make it and survive. But then all of a sudden there's scary opposing forces. And then out of nowhere, you're an American or you're, you know, you're, you're something as opposed to something else, right? And similarly that happens in religion a lot. And, as an indication of this, a lot of religious labels begin life as insults. So Christian began life as an insult. It's not something that Christians initially started just saying. They're like, yeah, I'm Christian. They said lots of other weird mystical sounding things like I'm a follower of the way, which sounds like a cult, right? It just sounds literally straight up like a cult, like I follow the way. But it makes a little bit of sense because what would you, if you had to express everything you are, the cent, like the sort of central goal of your life to somebody in a single word, especially if you're having you know, at your disposal words that do exist and don't yet exist, it's not obvious that the word Christian communicates too much of what Christians stand for. I mean, it has the benefit of at least including the name of Christ in it, but even then, like it doesn't, like it's not a specific position on anything. It's just like, I'm a follower of Jesus. 
And what does that mean? Similarly, things like uh, Lutheran began life as an insult. Absurdly, Jew still gets used as though it were an insult, like amongst, you know, anti-Semitic people. And it's a little bit mysterious why you're like, at some point, this is just labeling. Like, why is this supposed to be insulting? But the word Jew itself comes from the Latin, it just means an inhabitant of Judea. So similarly, that again, that tells you nothing about what Jews believe or don't believe or what they practice. It's like trying, it would, can you imagine the absurdity? It would be like trying to communicate what a Christian is by just calling someone an American. And that would certainly not communicate like the, the majority of the, of, the, of the actual, or any of the content of Christianity. It would probably be a, be a disaster for, public, rela for um, public relations. Similarly, prior to all of these delightful insults that were devised on behalf of other religions, the word atheist is also began life as an insult. To call something atheos in Greek does not mean somebody who believes or doesn't believe something. It literally means someone who's godless. And if we think about the kinds of people who we call godless, then a whole slew of connotations comes up in our head, which is to say that to call someone an atheist in the ancient world was to call them immoral, you know, to call them basically a, often a hedonist, often someone who just has a, a very deviant morality or no morality at all. It didn't even occur to people that you could fail to believe in the gods. It was just a question about whether or not you actually did what you were supposed to do and were an upstanding citizen. So to call someone an atheist for a very long time was not understood as some kind of a statement about their philosophical position on the God question, but a way of just smearing them and saying, you know, you filth, you, you immoral sinner. And similarly, I think that sometimes, depending on what kind of believers you're interacting with, I think that this has been my experience and it might not be so much anymore, but I don't, you know, I'm not that old for God's sake. So it must still be, some, it must still be true somewhere. I think that there's, it can be a difficulty about religious people really wrapping their heads around somebody who has no experience of what they're talking about and who literally just looks at them as like, thinks they're crazy. I, yeah, I think that I've experienced genuine surprise and shock because the idea just seems like, again, how could you fail to have a stance on a really important question? If anything, I think this also, nowadays, this like the people who get harassed a lot are agnostics. Because at least if you're an atheist, there's like, you can own that identity and really like sort of have your place. But nowadays, I think the common assumption just is, oh, you're an agnostic. So you're just lazy. You know, you're just intellectually lazy. You don't want to decide. I notice we're already implying that there's some kind of decision involved. Like, what would that decision even be? Deciding to believe versus not believe. But yeah, so all of that, really long segue to say that I think that one can get the impression from a lot of early Christian writing and other types of religious writing, not just Christian, where the idea is if you don't believe in, like, it's never a question of whether you really believe or don't believe in the gods. Whether it's just a question about whether you are personally good or not, but that's kind of neither here nor there. I think the thing that I really wanted to ask, but I'm sure that there's, there's follow-ups, because it took me years to figure this out, and I was so excited when I did. I gasped for joy. Do you guys have any thought about why Orwall can see, the, why she does have that single glimpse? It seems, because it just seems like the gods are gaslighting her. She's like, she sees it for a brief moment, and then it's gone, and it, it's the soul, it's that one event which ruins, in a sense, ruins her life, right? Not entirely, but it really does lay her low. 
I do have some opinions about why she could see, and then of course everything else I just said, but like, why do you guys think that she was able to see the palace for that one moment, but not after? That's a good question. Um, I think that it serves kind of a dual purpose. The first I would say is that maybe Lewis is trying to point out that it takes only one instant, really just like just one in order to change the entire situation. Because it seems like the point of this book is to kind of, and again, like we'll see this much more so in part two, so I don't want to say too much, but it starts off as a case against the gods. And then you find out that it's not the gods who are on trial at all, but it's oral, right? And this is, this is the key point in that trial. And the extension, so long as Orwell is on trial, we are as well. I think that's kind of the, the relevance of this book to us is because kind of like we talked about last time, Orwell is by far the most relatable character, right? Everyone else, Bardia and the Fox and the King and even Psyche and of course Redival, they all sort of stand for something. They like represent something. But Orwell is the only actual person, I think, that we see in this book. And so, of course, we are meant to relate more to her than we are to anyone else. And so the single moment is the source for her conviction. I don't, I don't recall, like, the legal terms, but, like, that's the, that's the contingency. I think because we are on trial with Orwell, basically, if she can be put on trial and convicted based on a single instant where she should have done otherwise you know where the evidence was presented to her um if she is on trial for that then we are on trial for that as well i think is the point and by our own judgment we see like oh crap if she saw it then she's guilty in some sense then we know that if we ever experience that moment that we talked about before of sort of like doubting our doubts and maybe god is real then that means that we're guilty as well i think that's the first point or the that's the first purpose that this serves but the other purpose that this moment serves is that you'll notice her silence speaks just as much as everything that she says, because you'll notice that she doesn't crouch back down to see like, wait, okay, maybe I could see it from that point of view. She doesn't re-drink the water. She doesn't ever even like venture back up to where Psyche is, right? Like she never, never tries to see it. She sees it for the instant and that is given to her and she never tries to get that back so it kind of shows she's already biased in her own direction because to to concede oh my gosh psyche like i saw it of course psyche would be super happy like the whole story would pan out completely differently right but Oral would have to swallow her pride to do that and she's not willing to embarrass herself like that i think is kind of the point she's not willing to admit that perhaps she was wrong about everything and so her silence betrays her unwillingness to admit that And so I don't think it really necessarily counts as just one moment because perhaps just maybe if she had done otherwise, it wouldn't have been a single moment. If she had chosen differently based on that single instant, then perhaps it would no longer have been an instant and she would have been able to see the whole thing and interact with the palace and everything as well. So, yeah, I I think those are the, that's the dual purpose that this moment serves is it convicts, it convicts Orwell kind of on two counts. So what do you think, Yvette? Or do you think that there is, like, do you have an idea about what the cause for Orwell's seeing is? Or any attitude about what, how, like, how that moment plays into her account 
and her either justification or conviction before the gods? I think unless there's actually a hallucinogen in the, in the water she drank, well, then that would be the cause. However, I, I'm not awfully sure. I do think, however, that I think it ensures that ambivalence because uh, without it, I think she's to an extent quite certain, apart from the instance where she says she saw a thing when it rained of Psyche's madness or otherwise Psyche's belief in what she sees. I think that's how, that's, that was her perspective on the matter. But in that split second when she sees the palace, I, I think it ensures that ambivalence because it helps her, it brings it into perspective for her in a manner of speaking. So it's not just this thing that someone else sees and I have to think through, but in this moment it's actually something that I, I got a glimpse of. I think that was for, that's how it affected Oral's telling of the narrative. I think it's, she sees it, she, she glints, it helps because it's just for a split second and then she doesn't, it helps readjust her perspective in the way she tells the story. I do also think, I don't quite remember the chronology now. Help me with this. Did that happen right before? Oh, this happened after she had gone to Psyche's and made her promise to look at the face of the right? This happened after that. This um, scene happened after she had gone over to the valley and made Psyche's promise to look at the face of the person she lay with. No, no. So she, so Orwell saw, caught a glimpse of the house, of the, the god's house. Right. After. This was before she made Psyche promise to. Ah. Uh, yeah. So. Was it before? Yes, it was before. And so that's part of the conviction, right? She had a glimpse whilst, like, before she even. Yeah, she had a, she, she had her glimpse of the god's house right after she left Psyche the first time. Whenever Bardia oh, took her up the mountain, time, yeah. and yeah, so not when she came back, and of course, and she failed. She failed to tell anybody, either the Bardia fox called. or Bardia, yeah. about that seeing. And so that's a piece of evidence, which is kind of like even immediate, like immediately after she disbelieved in the castle or in the palace, she had a glimpse of it. And so one could argue that she should have taken that into account. But of course, she subsequently goes on to blackmail Psyche into revealing the god by carrying a lamp into the chamber which is the, okay. the part that's very of the the famous part that's part of the myth okay okay well then uh, i now that i uh i was off for sure i think that's one other proposition not to claim that i'm certain of anything but um after it all happened and psyche's exile she says she um she claims to hear a voice which then says you will be like psyche um, I, I suppose it helps that it serves as a starting point for that because if she hadn't seen it and then went on to try to make Psyche do this did, it would come from a place of absolute conviction of Psyche's madness. But now that there's a slight, there's an iota of doubt, I should say, that she sort of thought she had seen a glimpse and she still made sure of that. I think it helps to justify the well, maybe he doesn't quite because if she's like psyche she didn't have as much of a glimpse as psyche did so maybe it doesn't very well justify but that's my proposition not that i'm awfully sure of short of there being a hallucinogen in the river 
<laughs> yeah. So I have a thought, two thoughts. I have many thoughts, but I have at least two thoughts. So here's one thought, which is that, so re I really like that part that you brought up, I believe, Ifet, which is that there's a lot of great pithy sayings like in this really jaded book. So, I mean, it's really great to read and feel bitter about or to feel bitter with Orwell. But notice that she had said, I was exactly at that point at which if the gods meant us well, they would have done something. And instead, look what happened. It started raining. And it's that the, the thing that the reason why that makes her really doubt Saki's story is because she sees Saki getting wet. And so she has the maternal instinct of saying, you know, like here, Psyche is just in the rain as a, and it doesn't matter to her any more than it matters to like a wild beast or the cattle in the rain. And so that just, she reacts really violently against that from her maternal instinct of saying, how can I just let my adoptive or stepchild almost just sort of be a wild person like this. But if you remember, this is all obviously going back to the original, the other parts of the book, but in chapter 10, whenever she first re-meets Psyche in the Secret Valley and Psyche's telling her her story, she says, among other things, Psyche was telling about how she was removed out of the irons from the holy tree and then, you know, taken. But while she was still chained to the tree, she said, the only thing that did me good was quite different. It was hardly a thought and very hard to put into words. There was a lot of the fox's philosophy in it things he says about the gods or the divine nature, but mixed up with things the priest said too, about the blood and the earth and how sacrifice makes the crops grow. I'm not explaining it well. It seems to come from somewhere deep inside me, deeper than the part that sees pictures of gold and amber palaces, deeper than fears and tears. It was shapeless, but you could just hold on to it or just let it hold on to you. And then the change came and or Orwell asks what change? And she says, the weather, of course. I couldn't see it tied to the tied the way I was, but I could feel it. It was sud I was suddenly cool. Then I knew that the sky must be filling with clouds behind my back, overglown, for all the colors on the mountain went out and my shadow vanished. And so it's obviously about to rain. And she says, so then I knew quite well that the gods really are, and that I was bringing the rain. So it's interesting that actually the same experience more or less, that convicts Psyche that there are really gods and that she's involved in the process, the sacrificial process that's bringing the rain, that just convinces her that this is true. And the same, ex a similar experience, the experience of rain falling, does the exact opposite with Orwell. So rather than, of course, believing that the gods really are and that the rain is being brought by Psyche or by some sacrifice, she has the exact opposite reaction of saying, no, this is crazy. Psyche is crazy. We're getting wet. So that's one thing. That it, that this, uh, it's another example of a similar experience, having a radically different interpretation by the people in question. The other thing is that, let me again find it. She, this must be in chapter 12, whenever she has the truth, the seeing, without narrating it all, we see that she has the vision of the castle. And she says, it was a house asleep and somewhere within it, asleep also, someone or something, how holy or horrible or beautiful or strange with Psyche in its arms. And I, what had I done and said? 
what would it do to me for my blasphemies and unbelievings? I never doubted that I must now cross the river or try to cross it, even if it should drown me. I must lie on the steps at the great gate of that house and make my petition. I must ask forgiveness of Psyche as well as of the God. I had dared to scold her, dared what was worse to try to comfort her as a child, but all the time she was far above me, herself now hardly mortal, if what I saw was real. I was in great fear. Perhaps it was not real. I looked and looked to see if it would not fade or change. Then, as I rose, for all the time I was still kneeling where I had drunk, almost before I stood on my feet, the whole thing was vanished. So I realized some a while ago, another great theme that Lewis repeats throughout his writing is the theme, or this quote that he says a number of times, which is that we are taller when we kneel. And I literally think that the reason why Orwell could see the damn palace was not because of a hallucinogen in the water, but because she was kneeling. Oh, gosh. Okay. I didn't even think about that, but that's good. <laughs> um, because the, the entire point is, so I don't know if you guys have heard, like, from a long time ago, when I first started, like, the podcast, and I had to give, like, an explanation of some of Wittgenstein's thoughts. This is a great, like, so the question, we're confronted with a problem, which is, we have this thing which two people are perceiving differently. And the impulse, if you, so if you buy into the classical idea about the objective versus the subjective, it's, a, like the, the, it's always gonna be kind of a moot question of like the question, you could ask it and say, is Orwell seeing something that's objectively real or is she only experiencing something subjective like a hallucination or some kind of delusion? Because the traditional schema in epistemology is such that we assume that whatever is outside of our mind, you know, as if our mind was a place, is objective. It's literally like an object in space and time. It's extended. As opposed to whatever is subjective, which is just inside of our head or in our mind or whatever that means. And so the traditional dichotomy has been between the object versus the subject. And so one way of reading this entire problem is to say, Either there is or there is not something there, such that it is a palace, and either Orwell can or cannot see it. And this is wildly problematic for a lot of reasons. So Lewis, who was strongly influenced, despite his objections, by Kantian and idealist philosophy um, in, his early, in his early days, part of the, the revolution of Kantianism, which is not pure idealism, but transcendental idealism, is the thesis that our subjectivity, the, the transcendental categories of thought, which are just sort of hardwired into us, influence experience. So instead of us experiencing what's really there, so quote unquote, our mind has an influence over what we actually experience. And so this, this comes out in the Kantian maxim or the Kantian sort of saying or dictum that thought doesn't conform to experience, experience conforms to thought. So that's one thing. But from another later perspective, namely, you know, a Wittgensteinian perspective, another possibility is that this is an example of what's called aspect seeing. 
So in the first episode of the podcast, what we talked about different kinds of aspects you can see things under. And one of the ways of addressing, I don't know if it's successful because I haven't finished reading the book, but it's a one way of responding to the problem with divine hiddenness is that the problem is not necessarily that there is or there is not some objective reality, namely God, that we either do or do not experience. The problem is that whatever is there to actually experience may be influenced by our attitude to it. And so there are things that you literally, even if they were there for you to experience, the idea is that you might, you still might not experience it if you're not in the proper position to do so. And a bit like we talked a lot about the fall last time, and an enormous part of Lewis's contention is that you cannot appropriately approach the divine without humility. You can't just say to God, I like you disinterestedly. Instead, you, you have to take an active interest in what God is potentially and really for you. And so it's a big part of his maxim that like, like Ifa was saying, and like I think Mason has said, you have said as well, a lot of this goes into Orwell's pride. And it's, it makes a difference that when she, the one, in, I think it's, it could be just a coincidence, I'm almost certain it's not a coincidence, but it's a really interesting coincidence that the, the only time she has a genuine seeing is when unexpectedly, in part because of her need, like she's literally thirsty, but also in part of her, just her need for a sign, she's on her knees and she sees it. But notice the wording when she says, almost before I stood on my feet, the whole thing was vanished. So you literally have this idea of her as she's rising, it's disappearing. And I know that it doesn't say, indicate whether she sort of went back on her knees at a later point. But the point, I, I, once I saw that, I was like, oh my God. The reason she was able to see was because in an unexpected moment, she, she had let her guard down. But more importantly than just letting her guard down, she was in the proper position to see something like that because she was kneeling and she was in a position of humility. Now, once she was standing, it disappeared. And she never really kneels again for the entire book, obviously, until the very end. But that's something later. I'm not going to spoil that. But the point is, the fact, the thing that made a difference, at least in my perspective, is that literally she was on her knees when she saw the palace. And when she stood, it disappeared. But we never get to see the implications of that kneeling because, she, again, she stands up and it disappears instantly. So this entire thing, I think it is very much about her pride. And I think it's really significant that her, her seeing the, the moment which really undoes her whole justification is the fact that she was in an, unex, she was in an unsolicited, unpretentious moment of epistemic humility when she actually sees the, the, the palace for the first time. And then once that goes away, so does the seeing. Thank <laughs> you.